0: be seated. Psalm 23 this evening in our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Psalm 23 is where we are, and if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, we like everybody to have a Bible and to follow along as well as to hear the Word of God. Men are coming up the aisles right now, and if you just wave at them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands, and you can hear the Word of God and Read along for yourself. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Psalm 23. Oh, my. What do you do with that? I remember listening to um, I had a, a friend who's now with the Lord by the name of Bill McDonald and uh, just went to the Lord within the last few years in his middle 80s. And I remember him talking about Uh, different things related to ministry. And he mentioned concerning the Lord's Supper that we partake of once a month. He said, I remember him saying, that's one of the hardest kind of services that he did despite walking with the Lord for so many, many decades. Because it's like, what do you do with it? I mean, no matter what, all you're doing is scratching the surface of what is represented by that bread and by that cup and the body and the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. I'll tell you, I understood exactly what he was saying when he made mention of that. And Psalm 23 is kind of in that place. And it, but there's a funny thing about Psalm 23, and it's true of all the Word of God, but uh, even singing Amazing Grace, you think, how many times has that been sung in human history? How many times have you sung it? And yet we never tire of it. You hear the chord. And some of us already know. You know, this is we're going to sing "Amazing Grace." Some of us, they're like a minute into the song before we realize, "Oh, this is Amazing Grace that we're going to sing." But we never tire of singing it because uh, the the weight and the majesty of what is communicated in that. And so, Psalm 23 is one of those psalms where we never tire of it. We never feel like we know it, you know, inside and out, and know it perfectly very, very well-known psalm. And David, in Psalm 23, he describes the life of the person who makes the Lord their shepherd. And everybody has a shepherd in life. It could be another person. Sometimes people think, oh, those Christians are the only one that worship God. Everybody worships a God. It's just a matter of whether that God is worthy of being worshiped or not. Everyone has a master passion in their life. And so everybody has a shepherd. It can be a philosophy. It can be a religion. It can be a person. It can be selfishness. It can be materialism. It's the thing that gets a person out of bed in the morning and drives them through life. And so everybody has a shepherd. And David here begins to communicate the blessings of the person who has the Lord as their shepherd. And David, of course, he knew a little bit about shepherding, didn't he? He was a shepherd boy, almost overlooked in his family, because that was such a low position uh, to to uh, take, was to be the shepherd of, of sheep. And yet he understood what it took to uh, take care of sheep, and, and he actually writes Psalm 23, most likely much later in life, after walking with the Lord for a very long time. And as he thought about his own life, and how well God had taken care of him. He wasn't the easiest sheep or lamb in the world to keep track of, was he? And yet when he looked at his life, he said, I want to write a psalm, The Power of God, that communicates the only explanation for my life is not my talent and my abilities. The only explanation for my life is that the Lord is my shepherd." And there's a certain quality of life that comes with the Lord being our shepherd in this life that nothing else, of course, rises up to even remotely. And so David was a shepherd. He knew sheep. And the whole idea is to bring the image in our mind of a shepherd tending sheep. And God is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. He is not the sheep, and we are the shepherd. That's Christianity backwards. Uh, Quite popular today, by the way. But we, he is the shepherd and we are the sheep. Now, if sometimes we think about God calling us uh, sheep and we, um, we just kind of melt under it as a Christian. I mean, God thinks of me as a sheep and we, because we think they're so cute and we see them, you know, they've had their little uh, lambs and they're out in the field and going around. Who doesn't, you know, love sheep when they see them out uh, out in the field and, and everything and so we, sometimes we can think that it's highly complimentary but uh, there was another shepherd who knew something about sheep and probably the most famous book ever written on Psalm 23 is Philip Keller's book I think it's Philip is his first name um, on a shepherd looks at Psalm 23 and it's a very invaluable if you've never read that that's a classic and that's worth reading uh, on, on the psalm but uh, sheep are notoriously dumb Uh, They really are not the smartest uh, knife in the drawer, so to speak. They can actually walk around a a little knoll uh, away from the rest of the flock, and they might as well be 3,000 miles away. They can't find their way back to where the rest of the flock is to save their life. They can't retreat. Okay, wait a second. I've only been gone for five minutes. That means I can't be too far away from the flock. They're just out there as lost, as lost can be. And so they're not that bright, and they are notorious wanderers. It's nothing for a sheep to wander into any kind of danger or right off of a cliff. And it's certainly appropriate for us. God's people, the best of us, are notorious wanderers. We get ourselves into all kinds of trouble that we need God to get us out of. And then also, sheep are completely defenseless. They don't have any fangs. They don't have claws. The rest of the animal kingdom just looks at them, and they're just a meal on four legs. Just They see a lamb, and they just go, Okay, this is going to be so easy, and we are going to eat so well. And so they're defenseless. And and so when we realize that God speaks of us as as sheep, um, we, you know we can kind of we see him carrying the sheep over his shoulders hippies really like this uh, thing and Jesus has got the robe on of the whole, whole deal but, and, uh, and he is that close and he takes that kind of deliberate care of us but it, it uh, describing us like sheep really um, is, is not that flattering in a very real and important kind of way God isn't like just making fun of us or anything like that And the the point that David is making in Psalm 23 is is that whatever inadequacies a lamb has, they can completely be made up by that lamb shepherd. And the point is related to our lives. Whatever inadequacies we have, however the greatness of our need, whatever our vulnerabilities, whatever our weaknesses, Whatever our limitations in life. There's a lot of limitation in this room. And in humanity. It's all a little different in each one of our lives. But when the Lord is our shepherd, he is greater than all of those things. He's the great equalizer. He overwhelms our weakness with his strength. And so David here describes this, um, the life of the person who, uh, of the sheep or the person whose Lord is the shepherd. And, of course, the volume of the book, the Bible says, of the Bible testifies of Jesus. And so it's a picture of him, really, and ultimately, as he describes himself in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or I shall not lack is what... Uh, he's saying there. And then he begins to describe all of the things that this the Lord, our shepherd, brings into our life as uh, as our shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And of course, this speaks of food and the Lord uh, it just as lambs, the best pasture is green pasture. That's green grass. And over in the Middle East, uh, sheep don't always get green grass all the way all around the whole year. So those are very prime kind of times. And yet the Lord, for us, he, we've got green pasture. And it speaks about God's uh, his, uh, desire and his understanding of our need to be fed physically. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's going to speak of, of being fed spiritually too. But if we aren't fed physically, then not being fed spiritually isn't going to make a lot of difference after a few, you know, a little bit of time. And so the Lord is interested. I like, sometimes when I uh, travel, if I want to get a little memento of the trip, because I can forget that I've been anywhere in the world, but a little memento will um, remind me, oh, I was there once. And then everything comes up, all of the people and the pictures and the colors and the... Ministry and everything that went on. And so oftentimes I'll get something that's a, a, a bird that's related because it reminds me of what Jesus spoke about in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the fact that he knows that the birds of the air have need of food. And so he understands that we need food as well. And if he takes care of the birds of the air, he's going to take care of us also. And so the Lord feeds us uh, physically, and he provides for us daily physically. But then also it speaks, and the bigger and, and more important picture is that he feeds us also spiritually with a rich pasture of uh, the Word of God. You, 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 do you notice that your spirit, who you are, the inner man, gets hungry, just as hungry as the outer man, the physical man? You sit down in the morning or whenever that might be for your time with the Lord and you open up that Bible and you start to read that Bible and in comes a flood of nourishment on your spirit that is the same way if you're like super, super hungry and you sit down and it's not the kind of thing where oh, I think I can cram a little more food in, (laughs) but where you really get hungry. And you take that first bite, and it's kind of like Popeye with the spinach. I mean, you feel it go in, and it starts to radiate through your whole body. Everybody understand what I'm talking about here? Okay, but you don't care. Anyway, this is the story of my life. I'm just teasing. I'm not putting words in your mouth and all. So I just I just have this. Anyway. So the same thing, we open up the Word, and you start to read it, and it's just like, oh. But it's that thing, same thing toward toward the Spirit, and that's the Word of God needs to be the inner man, the spiritual man needs to be fed, and the Lord provides us with that as well. He leads me beside the still waters. Um, sheep don't like rapids. So you see those old Western movies, and they just head in those horses right out in their rapids, and no matter how deep it is, you never is, they'll run cattle through that, but they'll never run a herd of sheep through that. See, I had a, I had a herd of sheep on this side of the shore and then on the other side i didn't have any more so sheep don't work very well in the rapids they like still waters they like brooks and and uh, quiet uh, quiet places the word still water phrase still waters it means waters of of rest and so it's kind of the picture of peace and contentment and so it's talking about the fact we live in a very very turbulent world a world that is seemingly uncertain to us and a frenzied world that we live in. And so where do we go for peace? Where do we go to quiet down in this world? And that's important for sheep, and that's important for a human being. Uh, Otherwise, we're all going to end up in insane asylums, or we're going to all end up medicated. We are not meant to run the way that this world is demanding that human beings run in order to survive. So we need a quiet place, a place of refreshment. And, of course, that's at the feet of Jesus, again, on a daily basis with him. As Jesus uh, spoke to Martha when she wanted to move Mary from sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke's gospel, and Jesus said, she's, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things, but Mary has chosen that necessary thing, and it will not be taken away from her. And so this access, the ability to sit at Jesus' feet, pray to him, talk with him, Receive his perspective and strength and and all of these things available to us all the time. And the Lord renews our strength in that place. And then he says concerning this shepherd, he restores my soul. And that word restore means to return to uh, a former condition, to restore us to our former condition. And there are those times where a, a sheep can Wander away from the flock, and now they need to be restored back into the flock. The flock, the shepherd goes out and finds that wandering sheep, brings it back into the flock, restores it to the flock, and what's true physically of a sheep is true also of our soul. When we fail, when we wander, whether it's for a day, or whether it's for an hour, or whether it's for a minute, or whatever it is, and we sense now that we have been separated in, in a sense from the rest of the flock and we need to be restored back into that and know that God loves me and he's for me as much as he is with, for everybody else and all the people that didn't wander in the way that I wandered. And the Lord is faithful to, uh, to restore us. I wish I never failed. I wish I never sinned. I wish every word that came out of my mouth was the right word. I wish every driver knew how to drive. <laughs> the thoughts they provoke in me. I'm a victim. <laughs> I wish in every situation I, could, I was the hero of every story. Now, what, most preachers will only tell you the stories we're the heroes of. We're not the heroes of every story. And we need to be restored. And so we're glad that we have a shepherd who is a a restoring shepherd. So he restores my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so he leads us on the right paths, a lot of paths in life that will destroy a lamb. There's a lot of paths in life that aren't right. But when we obey his word and we follow him in this relationship, he puts us on a path that is always the right path. David, here he is later in life, he doesn't have any regret for having followed God. I don't know how many years, I've since 1980, I've walked with the Lord. And I know you could all witness to the same thing for me. Your your date would be different than mine. But we would all say we have no regret for having followed him on the path that he has put in front of us. The longer I live and the more I see the victims that are produced on the paths of man's wisdom in this world, it kills me. It just breaks my heart because it's so unnecessary. And so it's kind of that bittersweet thing where you look at it, it hurts you to see what's happening to other people, but at the same time it makes us realize, thank you, Lord, that you lead us on the path that you have led us on and the quality of life that we enjoy on that path. I don't envy a single unsafe person in this world. I don't care how rich they are or powerful they are or how... Um, accomplished they are or talented they are if I had to walk away from the Lord and and cash all of that in to have whatever they have but not know God that's the easiest decision in the world riches are measured in a lot of different ways and and certainly very different from the way that the world measures riches we are so blessed and so unbelievably rich by virtue of the fact that we are on a path that God has chosen for us and a path that is righteous. Being right is its own reward. And you notice that he leads us on that path. There's a relationship in all of this that, that's, as well. It's not he just he said, Okay, here's the book. I'll see you when you come to heaven. And I'm going to be checking my list checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. He doesn't do that. He gives us the path and then he walks with us on that path. What a shepherd. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And this speaks of Walking in circumstances that we face in life where it's right up to and including death, the darkest valleys and the deepest trials that we can face in life, he shepherds us through that. He never abandons us, that place. In fact, we become more conscious of him than even, uh, even before. And that trial where he talks about the valley of the shadow of death, where death is approaching, looks like death could happen in this particular trial. And he's the one that's able to minister to us and speak to us at that time. There does come a time, and if the Lord tarries, and we go to be with the Lord individually, for many of us, it will be depends on how the Lord takes us home to heaven. But there can be that time where every other voice in life is going to fail us. Will we go into that coma or whatever it is? Our wife can't reach us. Our husband can't reach us. Our children can't reach us. Nobody can reach us for where we've gone now. But God can reach us there. And He speaks to us and He's faithful to us. If you're ever in a situation where you are facing that kind of a death... Or you are facing, you are ministering to a loved one who is in that kind of place in their life. You say, all right, hospice is involved and they're giving them these medications. Or they've just gone inward, just on their own. Their world is getting smaller and smaller as as they're getting ready to slip into heaven. And you realize, though, no matter what you see with the naked eye, God is involved in that Christian's life, all the way out of this life and into the life that comes. I remember Gail Irwin speaking many years ago, and it really blessed my heart in this vein, where he his father was severely injured in an airplane accident and, uh, and uh, severe mental damage. And so Gail essentially ended up raising his father. And after that accident, his father was a very different man and you couldn't get through to him and all of these different things. And he said the interesting thing is we would take him to church and he would hear the songs that were being sung and he could sing them and and, uh, knew them by heart and all of that, engage in all of that. And then soon it was over, he was back again. And what that tells us is there's a place of the Spirit, again, the inner man. There's a place of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that goes on way down deep inside of us that God is always faithful to. And so when we face death, we can know, oh my, what's going to happen? What are going to be the characteristics of this? And we can know, Lord, you will shepherd me all the way through this and into heaven and you will you will uh, never abandon me here and you will be able to speak to me and be to me what no other human can be in my life and i'll tell you that's a very valuable thing in life as well he said your rod and your staff they comfort me now that's a funny old part of a verse there in in uh, verse four your rod and your staff they comfort me and say well that's that's nice Okay? (laughs) Do you kind of know what a rod and a staff are? A rod was was kind of a stick about this long, and it had a bulb on the end of it. So they might take a a piece of wood, and they would carve it out, and it would have a bulb like that. And what the shepherd would do is when a sheep would begin to wander, he'd grab that thing out, and scare that sheep back into the flock Maybe hit the sheep, Mm. (laughs) 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 or whatever they sound like when they get hit like that. So it's a little more urgent, probably. So, but it's it's a means of discipline. A staff was uh, not just a stick that, like a shepherd's got a staff just for show. So they, you know, he can have something for the shepherds that they sell carved out of olive wood in Jerusalem. A staff really, it was a tool. They worked with it. And, it had a, and, it had a, and one of the things, it's kind of like a little-known secret, but all sheep should know about it. The one end was sharpened so that if a sheep started to get out of line, you just jab that baby right there and you'd get get into line. Nobody wanted to take that jab. And it talks about the discipline of the Lord. Sometimes the Lord, He demonstrates the fact that He is our shepherd by just holding us in his arms. And then other times he represents himself as our shepherd by giving us a spanking. And when he disciplines us, Hebrews tells us that it's only an evidence of the fact that he is our father. You, 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 if you ever go into a restaurant and a child is misbehaving, you don't go over to that child and spank that child. Listen, apparently nobody's going to do this, and it needs to be done. And I want to enjoy my dinner, so I'll go ahead and spank your child for you. We don't, we don't do that because discipline is the responsibility and the right of the parent. And so he is encouraged. David, again, he wasn't perfect. He was a wanderer too, a little bit. And he recognized that when God disciplined him, kept him in line, that that was an evidence that God was His shepherd and involved in His life. And the Bible says that we know that He's our Heavenly Father on the basis of a lot of things, but one of them is on the basis of His discipline or His training in our life. And I really know that God is my Father on the basis of that alone. Boy, does He work hard to keep me in line. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so in that Middle Eastern culture... If you were invited into a, uh, even an enemy's tent, you could come into that tent, and once you were in that tent, under the laws of hospitality that remain to this day in much of the Middle East, once you came in as a guest, all of the other people that were a part of that tribe that would cut your throat in an instant if they could, all they could do is stand at the door and watch the master of that tent feed you and, and give you a feast, there was nothing they could do to keep that man from blessing under the law of hospitality. And that's what the Lord does in our life. He blesses our lives, and there's nothing our enemies can do about that. And there's nothing that our great enemy, the devil, can do about it. It must be very frustrating to be the devil to watch God bless us, and there's nothing that he can do to stop that. And so God, he He speaks of how openly God blessed his life. You anoint my head with oil. And this speaks, of course, of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Oil on a sheep was a very, it was like a medicine was a very comforting a blessing and so the, what greater blessing in life than to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. He said, my cup runs over. And that's the idea of when you're at a feast, that, and, of course, wine was the beverage in those days that your glass was never allowed to go empty. And so it's just a, always a, a full glass and wine so often in the Old Testament speaking of joy, uh, speaking of fullness of blessing. And so David said, this is the greatest life. Uh, it, it's such a blessing. And then he said, surely goodness and follow, and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And so uh, it, this, the, the fact of, of the Lord just, we, we look and, and in our life we wonder what's out ahead of us in our future. And this, this part of the, of the psalm is intended to give us confidence concerning the future. What's in your future? Because the Lord is your shepherd, goodness and mercy. And he will be there tomorrow. And it'll be there the next day and the next day and the next day and next month and next year. And it won't matter who it is that gets elected or doesn't get elected president or anything that go on in the world. The Lord's not limited by those things. And He will make sure that goodness and mercy is coming our way. We can be confident about... Uh, the future, that good is ahead. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and then following the days of my life, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. And then you notice that word, forever. So we're talking about heaven here. What's the old saying? All of this and heaven too. It, did somebody come up with that in the 1960s? No, it's as old as Psalm 23. That's how David closes it. All of this and and heaven too, and so the beauty of, of uh, Psalm 23 here, and and uh, the blessings of how it is that God cares for His people, cares for His uh, flock, and how rich we are when we can say, as the Psalm begins, "The Lord is my shepherd." In Psalm uh, 24, uh, we come to a Psalm that. Uh, calls on uh, Jerusalem to open up or to surrender to the king of glory. So it is a psalm that anticipates the future coming of the Messiah or of the Lord. And it's interesting to notice that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are kind of a uh, triplet or whatever whatever the triple version of a couplet is. And uh, so they kind of all go together. Psalm 22, speaking of the Messiah as savior psalm 23 speaking of the messiah as shepherd and psalm 24 speaking of the messiah as the coming king and so uh, each of them uh, uh, doing that beautiful work in other words the messiah when he comes into the world he's going to cover our past savior he's going to cover our present shepherd and he's going to cover our future as a a coming king. And so the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus, he has covered our past, our present, and our future, and uh, a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament in these three psalms. The psalm is believed to have been composed by David to celebrate the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom, uh to a, a tabernacle uh, there in uh Jerusalem and all of that as we saw in uh, the historical books of 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 1 Chronicles uh chapter 15 and so David writes and he says the earth is the lords and all of its fullness the world and all those who dwell in it for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters so everything the whole earth and everything in the earth belongs to God. And why? By virtue of the fact that He created it. We're just renting here. We're just some long-term leases, some short-term leases. But we're just... This all belongs to the Lord. And don't think He ever forgets that. He He knows. All this belongs to Him. And, and so here is this uh, praise that's offered to the Lord... As creator, The beauty of Psalm 24, and it's helpful to understand, is that it was probably a psalm that was sung by two different choirs. So as all of this, as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into the city of Jerusalem, and you remember David dancing with all of his might and a celebration when they finally got it right and, and all... And the emotion of it—it it probably it appears that there were two choirs involved, and one choir would sing one part of this psalm, and then the other choir would sing the next part. One part—one choir would uh, pose a question, and then the other choir would answer the question, as we see in the psalm. And so, I mean, it kind of just gives you chills a little bit thinking about being there, and they're shouting this out, they're singing this—the excitement of, uh, of of the moment—and so. Uh, verses 1 and 2 probably sung uh, by uh, the first choir and then the second choir would have jumped in in verse 3 and talking about the fact that a holy God should be worshipped by a holy people who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand uh, in his holy place. He who has Clean hands, that is, right actions, and a pure heart. In other words, pure minds and motives. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, not an idolater, nor sworn deceitfully. In other words, they don't use their speech in ungodly ways. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. The righteous, and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek Him, who seek His face. And so, these are the worst kind of worshiper that can expect the fullest of God's blessings uh, uh, upon their lives. And then, in verse ten, it begins to uh, the the uh, ark of the covenant is nearing now. The entrance gates to the city of Jerusalem. And, and so the choir number one shouts out ahead, lift up your heads, O you gates. And so they're speaking to the gates to open up the gates now. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, is now coming uh, toward you. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of Glory shall come in. And, and so they call for the gates to be opened, to allow the Lord's entrance, so to speak. And then the second choir says, says, who is this king of glory? And then the first choir answers and says, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. So this is very artistic, actually. So for those of you who are artistic types, Um, I mean, this is David, all these ways to express this beauty of the event and David and others involved in it. And then the second choir, verse 10, jumps in and repeats the question, who is this king of glory? And then the first choir says, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Glory And so this beautiful celebration and, and all of the singing that would have gone on, all of the parts really must have been very powerful uh, to, uh, to watch. And so the lesson of the psalm is that the Lord is a glorious king and uh, his coming is to be celebrated. And, and this is kind of, a Psalm 24 is a little bittersweet um, because... When we read Psalm 24 and we understand uh, that it's, it is written not just of the Ark of the Covenant at the time of David, but also written prophetically related to um, the coming of Messiah, we realize that Psalm 24, that should have been the excitement and that should have been the praise and the worship that was offered up to Jesus at his first coming. That's what he was due on the day of his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. And instead, when he came into the city of Jerusalem, on the day that very day that Daniel had prophesied of, the common people were there and they celebrated. But the Jewish religious institutions and the higher-ups and the powerful people in the city in general just went on about their business and they just yawned a collective yawn. But everything isn't lost because what should have been sung to Jesus in his first coming will be sung to him at his second coming. It's interesting when, if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem or go to Israel and, and part of going to Jerusalem is to stand on the Mount of Olives and to realize when you stand on the Mount of Olives to the east side of the city of Jerusalem and to realize that that Mount of Olives is waiting... It is waiting in history. It exists. It sits there to one day feel the pressure of the foot of Jesus Christ the Messiah at the time of His second coming. And He is going to land on that Mount of Olives. It's going to split and He is going to enter in through the, into the city of Jerusalem then from the Eastern Gate the city of Jerusalem, and then all of this celebration where not only the Jews who missed in in large part all of this 2,000 years ago, but the whole world at the time of his second coming after the great tribulation will look at this opportunity to then sing these praises to him, the excitement that the king has come and and to make room now for him to rule and let's surrender to his lordship and of course that goes then into the thousand year uh reign uh of of Christ. And so beautiful psalm as it speaks uh, of all of that. When we go to when we go to Jerusalem we've been able to go a number of times and I pinch myself every time I'm there and Karen uh, and my wife knows that any time we travel, I mean if I if I go to series, well, I don't quite pinch myself, but um, uh, or Ripon or wherever, but you, you may never get a chance to do it again. I mean, you just never take anything for granted, and and so there is this uh, tile shop in the Armenian quarter, uh, and is a gentleman by the name of Vic, and so. Uh, usually when we have a free day just before it, I'll tell everyone that uh, there's Vic's shop and he usually has a bunch of tiles that he's done. He does really beautiful work, by the way. And, um, and he, he, he always has some eastern gates there. And I always go in and see him a little bit later and they're all wiped out. Everybody goes in and they get that... Eastern gate, that's the gate that Jesus is going to come through in his second coming. And they put it up in their house somewhere just as a a remembrance. But all of this is in the future. And so Jesus is not only our Savior, Jesus is not only our shepherd, but Jesus is also the coming King. And then in Psalm uh, 25, uh, this is a psalm about drawing near to God uh, after... uh, a sinning. So, really, this is better taught in other churches than here. Um, because we don't, we hardly know anything about it, but we'll try to go through it on a theoretical level. So, when we share with them, we can be a comfort to them related to it. So what we have here in, in Psalm 25, I'm, and I, I ought to say because not everybody gets my humor, I'm kidding totally related to this. We understand the, we understand the need to, uh, of, uh, you know, how do I draw near to God after I've flubbed, you know, after I've sinned. And, and so this is the second of seven uh, psalms of repentance that are contained in the psalm. And uh, and so uh, David, in the psalm, he confesses his sin to God, and then he couples with that request not only that God would forgive him, but then he becomes so bold as to, and I say wonderfully bold, to then ask God if he would also take care of the consequences of what his uh, uh, of his sin and so the psalm is a beautiful psalm and it really is written um, because all of us find us in that place where we just say I wish I hadn't done that I wish I hadn't said that I wish I could do that over again and where do we go to express our heart And so the psalms are they're are they're, they're so emotional they're such an expression of our spirit and anything and everything is contained in them And so here's this needed psalm along with six others that talk about, okay, what is the song that we sing to God after we've sinned and we need to be forgiven and we want to ask him to take care of the consequences of the sin uh, that we uh, we have committed. And so the psalm speaks of, really demonstrates the confidence that a child of God should have in terms of the mercy of God towards sinners when we confess our sin to him and when we do repent. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. And you notice that word ashamed a second time. Let those uh, let those be ashamed a third time who deal uh, treacherously without a cause, and so he's asking the Lord uh, to not a, 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 to, that his trust in God for forgiveness and for his life that he wouldn't be put to shame related to that. And then we see repetition of a word in verses. Um, 4 and 5, and that is the word teach. He says, show me your ways, O Lord, and then notice it. You can even underline it in your Bible. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. And then in verses 6 and 7, there's a repetition of the third word. And by the way, it all means something in a moment, and it's the word remember. Verse 6, remember, O Lord. (laughs) So, um, Lord, I know you remember my sin, but remember you're a merciful God too. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from old. God, you've always been a forgiving God. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to your mercy, Remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. And so here is this uh, beautiful uh, psalm as he lays out, and, and and he's and he's asking the Lord to uh, just to um, you know take care of him and help him not be ashamed, teach him what he's supposed to learn from his failure, and that's always you know no uh, sin or no. Failure on our part in sin as a Christian—nothing is a total waste. That we learn something from, and I'm one of those people that learns about ninety percent of what I learn from hard knocks, making the mistake. And but the key is to learn it. You know, you don't want to become a beat up too badly. So, but I—but it, it's best. The very best way is to learn, obviously, from God's Word and to learn from the mistakes of others. But, uh, you know, then we're going to learn from our own experience well. And and so he desired that God would teach him and then that God would remember also, as I said, the fact that he is a a God who notices our sin, but to remember that he is also a forgiving uh, God. And so uh, now he he asked the Lord uh, in all of this, he says, uh, he kind of reiterates the prayer and uh, the man God is able to guide And to teach, following his um, his repentance and 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 confession of sin, good and upright is the Lord, and therefore He teaches sinners in the way. The humble He guides in justice. The humble He teaches His way, and so God is able to the man that God is able to guide and to teach is the man who is humble, and uh, certainly our sin humbles us in our relationship with the Lord. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his com- covenant and his testimonies. Oh, for, and so the, the, the Lord is able to bless. This speaks of the person who is obedient to God's covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. As he's not no blame shifting or anything like that. Lord, I did it. It's a big sin, and I ask for your forgiveness. By the way, there's no sin greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise the Lord for that. There's no lifetime of sin that is greater than the forgiveness that's found in that sacrifice. The whole world of sin and all of human history all put together is not greater than the forgiveness that is found in that sacrifice of Christ upon that cross. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he shall teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. And so the fear of the Lord is important in. enjoying the fullness of God's blessings. He said, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. In other words, God guides us into places that are safe. He never guides us into some terrible place the way that sin does. And David said, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. And the troublers of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all of my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel uh, hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of her troubles. And so this beautiful psalm that reminds us that we can be confident that when we humble ourselves and if we confess our sins, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we can be confident in in the forgiveness uh, of of God and that we are able then to return uh, after a sin to return to humility with God a willingness to be taught by God a return of the fear of the Lord and all the blessings that come with that in other words there's not just God is not just willing to forgive us but he's willing once again to restore us into the the whole christian life that we treasure so much we treasure forgiveness but when we sin And if we do it deliberately, we grieve the Holy Spirit and there's the sense of that there's a great loss that has occurred in my life. Will God give those things back to me? Intimacy with God, confidence in my relationship with God, all of these things. And Psalm uh, 25 speaks to us of the fact that we can be confident uh, of all of that. Yeah, there's too much in 26 to just race through. Not that I race through anything, but we'll stop there and we'll pick up 26 next time because in this series as we're going through the Psalms, I absolutely want us to have time to just worship the Lord and, and to be able to respond to Him. And so these three beautiful Psalms that we've looked at tonight, each of them dealing with something so different. And that's one of the blessings of the Psalms is that, boy, they just deal with life and this life with God from so many different angles and a lot to think about, a lot to respond to tonight from these Psalms, all of them good things because of the greatness of our God. So if the worship team comes forward, we'll ask them to lead us in a little bit of worship before we close up this evening in prayer.